listening to Peace in Their Time, Episode 8, Towards Rome. Last week, we left off with the fascists reeling from the public embarrassment of, of electoral defeat. The November 1919 elections had been brutal for them, and by all rights, a minuscule party with no established base of support should have withered away into obscurity. But we know that doesn't happen, don't we? What this moment really called for on the fascist side was a change of tactics. First, Mussolini cleared up any confusion and jettisoned much of the left-leaning elements on his platform. The party hadn't been successful in peeling off socialist support, so playing to the socialist crowd right now didn't serve much of a point. The workers would theoretically be beneficiaries of fascism, but it would be on the future regime's terms from here on out. Power would be seized, and then changes enforced from above, not a revolution from below. Seeing as how the elections went so terribly, he also decided that non-democratic methods would be focused on to build the party's profile. So far, the political action had been dominated by the leftist workers' movements, with the establishment struggling to formulate an effective response to the newly assertive proletariat. We discussed last episode the numerous moves on the part of the workers to assume more control over the industries and farms they worked in, and how the elites started to get very nervous. Mussolini and his minions were ready to play on those fears of social change to build support. In the face of the general unpopularity of fascism, Mussolini was intent to change the rules of the game, and that involved expanding the role of the squadrists. I had talked about them earlier as basically street gangs of war vets, and those who fancied themselves cut from the same cloth as war vets. Now they would be expanded from gangs into full-on militia groups. The first move to be made in this expanded vision would be in the newly conquered port city of Trieste. Like Fayum, it had been part of the former Habsburg Empire, and while this particular port was definitely becoming part of Italy, unlike, say, Fayum, the town also occupied a kind of crossroads with a significant Slavic contingent present. The city played host to a fairly sizable movement that sought a place for the Slovenes and Croatians on the local political scene. This would prove to be a perfect dry run for street violence as a tool of repression. Trieste was under a military occupation, and thus was not fully integrated into the nation yet, meaning that the national political factions weren't solidly established, which meant less opposition. And best yet, no patriotic Italian would lift a finger when Slavic political groups got their offices broken into and their people chased about town. And this wasn't limited to just political organizations. Social clubs, schools, really any place of gathering was a potential target for roving fascist squads. And the authorities? Well, keep in mind the city was under military occupation. They openly encouraged the fascists in beating down the Slavic population, which would be a sign of things to come. For the uninitiated, the military and police had an unnerving tendency to look the other way when the squads rolled through town. This is a story that will be repeated all over Italy, and all over the world for that matter. It wasn't just violent squads the fascists were leveraging to spread their influence, either. By the latter part of 1920, they were also networking outside the party as well. The worker and farmer strikes had put the fear of the masses into the local elites. Out of that fear for their private property, these collections of landlords, businessmen, and landowners started reaching out to the fascists voluntarily for protection and muscle. 
These elites had lost so many elections recently, they could not reliably use the state to ensure their interests, so they hoped to use the fascists as their own private army. I would say this would backfire on them, but they proved quite amicable to the new order that was coming. And the new order proved quite amicable to them, too. If you're wondering what the government was going to do during all this, well, the answer is still not a lot. Giolitti took a position of state neutrality during the unrest. This may seem weak, and it definitely was, but he was trying to avoid a civil war that he doubted the state could survive. This first allowed the socialists and workers' movements to assert themselves, but when the forces of reaction started coalescing, the state continued to stand aside. The national government would intervene locally here and there, but could not bring itself to any consensus on how to manage the approaching storm on a national level or in any organized fashion. The main priority of the bureaucracy was just to get through the day. A notable victory in the new reactionary alliance was in November 1920, when a socialist mayor and city council was supposed to be inaugurated in, this, in Bologna. The fascists took to the streets, picked fights, and caused enough chaos that the national government intervened and appointed a more moderate administrator as a placeholder, while the violence blew over. This was repeated in the town of Ferrara in December, and the upper and middle classes now knew they were working with a group that got results. A funny thing now started happening as well. The fascists had virtually no electoral support before, but thanks to their successes in smashing up the socialists, the bourgeois liberals, and especially the younger members of those social strata, were getting the idea that maybe it'd be a good idea to rally around the fascist flag once it got time for the next elections we're starting to see how vital the prior successes of socialism were to the fascist reaction. Everywhere the fascist movement took off were the same places the socialists had enjoyed their greatest successes, especially in the northern half of the nation. The same places where the socialists had struggled, namely the south and the islands, the fascists also never really took off. It was the fear of socialist change and the loss of their privileges or traditions that caused so many of the old order to throw in with Mussolini. And when, and when push came to shove, those old elites or traditionalists had very little problem with ignoring or destroying the democratic system once it no longer served their purposes. Having enjoyed some success in the cities of northern Italy, the fascists also set out into the countryside for fights to pick and landowners to support. It was a similar story to that out in the cities, with landholders turning to the squads to keep their workers in line. But smaller, independent farmers also got in on the action. They, too, were apprehensive about socialist gains, as the improved contracts and working conditions of the hired laborers put more burdens on them, while they also lacked the large estates of the major landholders. So, naturally, they were caught in the worst of both worlds. And like most of the petty bourgeois, they focused on preserving what material possessions and social status they had, rather than pushing for reforms that didn't immediately serve them. With these bases of support, the fascists started attacking members of the Socialist Party and the Federterra, intimidating both organizations' personnel into abandoning their operations among farmers. Scab workers, choosing not to go through the Federterra or the PPI's CIL organization, began to be protected by the squads. And once the Federterra and CIL started showing signs of weakening, the fascists and local authorities started setting up labor syndicates of their own, 
with the express purpose of streamlining management of labor for the employer class. For both the socialists and the PPI, this was a major defeat and highlighted just how unprepared they were for a war in the countryside. By the early part of 1921, the agricultural areas of the Po River Valley and Tuscany were in de facto fascist hands. Coupled with funding now coming in from the bourgeois, especially in Tuscany, Mussolini was now on much firmer footing and could count on direct and indirect support throughout northern Italy for his new mode of politics. Meanwhile, both the socialists and populist PPI saw their major agricultural workers' unions critically undermined. You might be wondering what the PPI was doing during all this. Well, they also weren't doing a whole lot. Despite being the second biggest party in the country, they were more of a protest movement and lacked a coherent ideology to unite them against an active threat. And no, that isn't a crack on the Catholic beliefs the organization is based upon, just that the party as a whole couldn't agree on anything, which prevented a meaningful response to the increasing chaos the nation was sinking into. Meanwhile, the best plan Giolitti could come up with was to try and break off a chunk of moderate socialist support away from the more revolutionary factions in that party and work with them on some course of action to try and calm the nation. However, in January 1921, the socialists held a party congress and decided not to budge from their current course of mass labor agitation. They also didn't trust Giolitti too terribly much to fulfill any promises which was one of the problems with making Giolitti the prime minister again. Everybody by that point had his number and didn't really expect much from him. But being scorned by the socialists, Giolitti started turning his attention to the fascistic developments up north. By the start of 1921, they had made some bold moves, but were still dwarfed by the socialists. Though Giolitti saw an opportunity to use them to unite a more conservative bloc as an alternative to an alliance with the socialists. The parliamentary elections of May 1921 were supposed to be a breakthrough for Giolitti, as the Red Wave was supposed to recede. Well, it didn't. The Socialist Party did in fact lose seats, but that was due to a small faction breaking away and forming a straight-up Communist Party. So it wasn't like the Liberals picked up anything. The Catholics gained seats themselves, and still stuck to its policy of not playing politics. The fascists notably scored a moderate breakthrough and scored themselves 36 seats, which compared to the socialists and the PPI was not a whole lot, but they were actually in parliament now. Giolitti cobbled together a quote-unquote nationalist bloc, consisting of most everybody but the leftists, with the Catholics going along with him as passive partners. Which is not great, as now you have increasingly out-of-options liberals having to break bread with Mussolini and his guys as part of that coalition. For the fascists, though, it was a genuine breakthrough. The very conditions that allowed them to take off have not been interrupted one iota, and now they were actually part of the ruling coalition. Now, sure, they aren't doing any actual governing right now, but when a squad rolls in and cracks some skulls, they can put on the veneer of representing the government. And if Giolitti or some other lily-livered liberal tries to say otherwise, they could just withdraw all their wet representatives and start a government crisis. As you might imagine, this just made a bad situation a whole lot worse. The added legitimacy of the fascists being part of the government pretty much flatlined efforts at controlling the squads. 
Calls from Rome to prevent violence were undermined totally once you ally with the instigators of the violence. Of course, the police were on the side of the fascists as well. Usually they would just stand aside and let the squads do their thing with no follow-up arrests. But in Tuscany, they oftentimes worked hand-in-hand with the squads to crush the socialists in the area. By 1921, this was seen by liberals as appropriate law and order tactics, and their support for fascism only increased. The squads had by now established a legitimacy of their own. Alongside them were the previously mentioned worker syndicates, which while not exactly advantageous to the workers, these groups did spare them the violence being inflicted on their counterparts in more socialist organizations, which also took away potential recruits for those same socialist groups. And now, groups known as the Fasci, which were associations of fascists and their outside-the-party supporters, and which were once very small social clubs, well, they were now co-opting many local notables into their ranks. So much so, that between the elites having their backs, the police offering their support, and a growing militia as its muscle, the fascist party was starting to act as a shadow government in many areas of the North. I talked about the Ross establishing themselves in their cities as bosses, and by now they were starting to have the run of local affairs. In the second half of 1921, though, the fascists, oddly enough like the socialists, sort of became a victim of their own success. They had established themselves as influential beyond the relatively small number of parliamentary seats may imply. They had created a network that had cowed the leftists in much of the country and established themselves as an informal authority in those areas. But now, they were the ones that had to move forward and finish the job of taking over the state. Giolitti had gambled on the leftists simultaneously going big but not big enough to attain their desired total victory, which would undermine their supporters' confidence in them and cause the whole movement to fizzle out. The same idea he hoped could be applied to the fascists as well. But Giolitti would not be around to make any further accommodations with the fascists. The elections had placed his coalition in control of government, but not by a comfortable enough margin, and he resigned in July 1921 in favor of Ivano Bonomi. He had actually been a former socialist, but now was comfortable managing a conservative coalition. And for the moment, it actually looked like things might work out for the new government. In August 1921, Mussolini surprised everyone and agreed to the Pact of Pacification with the Socialists. It basically laid out that both sides would end the political violence racking the nation. This might seem like a jarring about-face. After all, political violence is what actually got the fascists noted and taken seriously. Why did Mussolini agree to this? Is this just a political fast one? Well, yes and no. Having a private army might seem cool at first, but the squads were a really informal private army. Their leadership ran through their local Ross, and from there, back to Mussolini. This meant that Il Duce had to deal with a cadre of local strongmen who were virtually autonomous in their home turf. Not the greatest subordinates for somebody with enough of an ego to call themselves Il Duce in the first place. Plus, the violence was starting to become an end unto itself in some cases. Again, because this is the thing that gets fascists noticed and supported. If it's the thing you do that makes advantageous things happen, you're going to just keep doing it. Mussolini at least had the foresight to realize that it all might go too far and blow up in his face. 
The stakes were now starting to get higher, too. The leftist militias were still a force to be reckoned with, especially in the Northwest, and care had to be taken not to push public opinion too far too fast. The violence so far had been hailed as re-establishing law and order, but if it was applied too much, or if it spilled over to the wrong people, it could provoke a backlash. And the chaos was definitely starting to get out of hand on the squadrists' side. Hundreds, if not thousands, of squadrists would march into towns and start setting buildings on fire and round up any presumed socialists they could get their hands on. Sometimes they'd pour castor oil down their throats. Sometimes they'd just beat the hell out of them. And sometimes the victims were just murdered. Sometimes all those things and more happened. It was starting to be an embarrassment from a PR perspective, and at the end of July 1921, a band of fascists, 500 strong, finally pushed the local cops too far in the town of Saranza. Having met opposition from the local populace upon entering the city, presumably because they preferred that no buildings be burned down, the fascists tried to press on through. Finally, a small group of cops intervened and drove them out, leaving 18 people dead. This was bad because the fascists relied on the cops to, at very least, not interfere. If they couldn't count on that, they'd be in trouble. So, Mussolini made the pact on the 2nd of August. The Ross were understandably upset at being undermined like that. All they had gained, power, the influence, all of it, was predicated on the violence. Now they would have to remove the boot from the socialist neck in their hard-won territories. Suffice to say, they rejected Mussolini's signing of the Pact of Pacification. Now, Mussolini kind of saw that coming, and moved to force the hands of the Ross by executing his Plan B, and resigning from his leadership spot on August 17th. The various Ross were more annoyed than anything else, as they knew what Mussolini was doing. Instead of caving, notable Ross, like Italo Balbo and Dino Grandi, made a show of meeting with Dionuzio, and making him the new fascist leader. They hoped to demonstrate that Mussolini was replaceable in the movement. But by then, the elder Proto-Duce had seen his hand largely played out, and there was no basis of support among the rank and file for him after his Fiume adventure had ignominiously fizzled out in December 1920. So, no change in leadership was actually made. In November, the fascists held a congress to sort everything out. Mussolini publicly buried the peace he had made only three months earlier and declared that the squadrists were integral to the movement. The truce was dead and the struggle could resume. In exchange, Grandi, on behalf of the other Ross, acclaimed Mussolini as the sole and indispensable duce of the fascist movement, which intentionally or unintentionally makes the peace of pacification a good move for Mussolini. It didn't serve any peaceful purpose, of course but it did bring the squads closer under his control. Now, that control wasn't perfect by any means. The problem of violence getting out of hand among the squads was still there. But hey, he was finally the openly acknowledged and official leader of the movement, with no other possible contenders. After the year turned, February 1922 would bring about more instability, as Bonomi stepped down as prime minister. He was replaced the same month with Luigi Facta, another liberal and Giolitti's personal lieutenant to boot. So, since the end of World War I, we've had Orlando, Nietzsche, Giolitti, Bonomi, and now Facta. If you're noticing a pattern of failure here, well, so did Italy. At this point, the leftists in the country are also starting to come apart at the seams. 
the militias weren't getting support from the political parties. The socialists and communists refused to work together, and the socialists still were unwilling to engage in parliament, even with the fascists casting about both in the streets and in the halls of power in Rome. Bonomi and later Facta tried to stem the tide of chaos and issued orders to disarm any and all or armed groups across the nation. However, by early 1922, local government officials had either swung fascists or were unwilling to stand up to the squadrists. They were, however, all right with disarming the leftist militias as they had no effective political defenders. Italy was rapidly entering an abyss as the fascists were now more actively pushing against local authorities. In May, Italo Balbo marched into Ferrara with 50,000 squadrists and unemployed members of the local syndicates in a massive show of force. Weeks later, the local prefect of Bologna attempted to clamp down on the legal activities of the squads. A small army entered the city, and the army took over the town's administration. Facta agreed to replace the offending prefect with no concessions from the fascists. From there, events spiraled further out of control. In July, Roberto Farinacci led his squad and seized direct control of the city of Cremona. Mussolini braced himself, as seizing a major city was something that had not been attempted before. But the government did nothing. If anything, they tried to pretend it wasn't happening. Oh, but it was, and this was just the beginning. Before the month was out, Rimini and Ravenna were also occupied by their local squads. The socialists proclaimed a general strike at the start of August, intending to create enough of a disruption that the fascists might have to back down. But this just made a new opening for the fascists. Declaring that a Bolshevik revolution was afoot, Mussolini pledged to protect the country as the government did nothing. Milan, Genoa, Livorno, Bari, and Acona were all occupied. In September, squadrists moved north from Venice and into the towns of Trento and Bolzano in the southern Tyrol, deposing the local governments on the grounds of being insufficiently zealous in their campaign of Italianizing the largely German-speaking region. By the autumn, the nation was holding its breath. The leftists had been pretty thoroughly beaten down. The liberals were discredited and Mussolini was in the ascendancy. The primary question was now whether the fascists would form a government through the legal route in Parliament or simply take the country by force. Most of the conservative liberals were unwilling to support calling in the army, which was the only way to dislodge the squadrists at this point. They feared a socialist revolution far more than they feared an authoritarian regime. This choice of action weighed on Mussolini. Less so his Ross, like Balbo and Grandi. Among much of the leadership, there was little love of democratic politics, so a march on the capital was the most desired outcome. This was intensely risky, though, as this might actually drive the king to mobilize the army against them. Ultimately, Mussolini did a little bit of both. He made public assurances that he would not challenge the position of the king, so long as he did not intervene in the nation's internal troubles. He also made every move to ensure that there would be no new government in the meantime. Facta, meanwhile, was trying to get D'Annunzio to try and make patriotic appeals to national unity, and also to get Giolitti back into the prime ministership, which kind of shows how little he was working with. Mussolini started making his move in mid-October. He approached D'Annunzio and convinced him to stand his troopers down, ensuring that he would not be facing any challengers from the nationalist wing of the movement. Four of the most prominent Ross of the party, Italo Bobo, Michel Bianchi, Cesar Maria di Vici, and former General Emilio de Bono started organizing the takeover of the country. 
The fascists assembled for a party congress in Naples on October 24th. It was confirmed that the group would move forward. The Ross headed back to their units, and Mussolini returned to Milan. Facta prepared the Rome garrison just in case the converging bodies of fascists made a move on the capital. On the 26th, the March of Rome formally began. Columns of squadrists assembled all across north and central Italy and began to move southwards. Towns, government buildings, railway stations, and more were seized as these groups headed south. Mussolini declined offers of an enhanced position in a new liberal-led government. In the early morning of the 28th, Facta approached the king to confirm the order to begin martial law. The king had been supportive of the idea just the day previously, but now decided to change his mind. The military would not stop the approaching fascists from entering the capital. Now, this is a real bad look for Victor Emmanuel, and it set the Italian monarchy on a pretty straight road to being dissolved. He did have his reasons, though. The first is that he did not see much of a point in fighting a civil war when the fascists were the only ones fighting the socialists, which was basically every conservative's excuse as to why they wound up supporting the fascists. The other reason is that there really wasn't a whole lot left to defend from the existing political order. All the liberals around him had openly resigned themselves to Mussolini getting an ever greater hand in government, and every liberal prime minister had done a terrible job in the past three years since the war's end. Why not start thinking outside the box? Especially when it meant he didn't really have to do anything and got to keep his position and all its privileges. Mussolini, for his part, was playing a much weaker hand than he might have been letting on. The March on Rome had managed to get a few thousand militia into the Roman suburbs, but momentum had slowed considerably once it had reached the outskirts of the capital. Mussolini himself was waiting in Milan for some good news. On the 28th, the king formally reached out to him and offered the position of prime minister. Mussolini eagerly accepted and immediately boarded a train to Rome. He wound up beating his own troops into Rome proper, who proceeded to have a show march on the 29th. Mussolini presented himself before the king in a shabby suit, which he played off by saying he had come from the battlefield. And while Mussolini has a reputation of being a buffoon, he played a cold-blooded game here. If at any point the king had called his bluff, that likely would have been the end of the march. But having sensed the hollowness of the liberal state, Mussolini was able to squeak into power. Now came the problems of success, though. The fascists had gone legit but they still only had those 35 parliamentary seats. The entire basis of Mussolini becoming prime minister was a mixture of the king having his back and an army of thugs ready to unleash any amount of violence against the slightest opposition. Luckily for them, it turned out the majority of parliament was more than happy to cede responsibility of an ungovernable nation to the new strongman. And that's where I'll leave you for today. Join me next week as we'll delve into Mussolini's consolidation of power. It's going to be repressive. See you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.